Hey everybody, welcome to um, more Plague Podcasts. So, look, what we're going to be taking a look at um, is social movements in Hawaii post-1970. And a lot of these are going to be um, Hawaiian-focused, um, especially stuff around sovereignty, etc., not exclusively Hawaiian in terms of the people who are participating, but definitely focus more and more towards Hawaiian issues, um, which is true for a lot of these social movements post-1970s, once you get through World War I, or sorry, the Vietnam War, um, etc. So let's start the show. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's look at some of the global context for the 1970s. Um, one, the Vietnam War, right? So the Vietnam War itself... Um, launched this wave of political protests across the United States. That combined with the civil rights movement, um, by the time we get to the 1970s, it's a really well-established sort of period of like social movements. Um, the civil rights movement will continue through the 1970s. Vietnam War um, is obviously over, um, but there's these other types of global movements um, that the U.S. is part of. So like decolonization is happening worldwide. You know, it starts in the, well, not starts, but uh, the first major decolonial success is India um, in 49. Um, the Philippines gets independence right around there, too. We end up with, um, you know, a, a bunch of other places in the 1950s and 1960s getting independent. So you have this global decolonization movement. You have an anti-nuclear movement, which Hawaii is a part of. Um, you have environmentalism. Um, this huge era of just sort of growing movements. And so you end up in, with this background of, of pushes for social movements. And in Hawaii, it's going to be very much focused around the issues. You know, there won't be very many large, um, you know, uh, African-American-focused civil rights marches in Honolulu in large part because there's a large African-American population, right? Like... So the, the social movements will be influenced by everybody else. Like a lot of people who are participating in these, these things will be listening to um, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X's, or they'll be reading their speeches, etc. But they are focusing the issues specifically on things that are hitting um, Hawaiians. Um, okay. Now... A lot of this will be political, um, but it's going to blend in a lot with a lot of cultural things as well. So, for instance, um, the Hawaiian cultural renaissance, um, this sort of revival of uh, Hawaiian culture, a lot of it can be um, sort of triggered, like, it's not triggered, but like started um, early on the 1950s, 1960s. by a generation sort of looking for, looking for ways to, to reconnect, like a younger generation looking for ways to reconnect. And we'll see, for instance, um, the Merry Monarch Festival starts up in 1963. It's relatively small at first. You know, it grows into today. It's this huge thing. Um, but it's, it starts off as this small sort of festival. 1971, the Kalama Valley um, movement, all, you know, all the stuff that we talked about last time with the eviction stuff, that all fits into this this as well. Um, but then, you know, Kalama Valley w- was seen as a key moment in the Hawaiian cultural renaissance because a lot of the Hawaiians that were there as activists, they're pushed to the front and they're like, oh, what is it that makes me as a Hawaiian 
Like, are, are the issues different for me as a Hawaiian than it is for, like, this Haole guy sitting next to me who's also protesting these evictions in Kalama Valley? And, and a lot of soul-searching that comes out of that, like, a lot of people who are involved in that that are Native Hawaiian start really sort of trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to be a Hawaiian and also be looking for social justice? Um, and that's going to be one of the things that's going to sort of lead a lot of them into um, sort of trying to, f- yeah, trying to find their more connections to what it means to be Hawaiian. And um, John Dominus Holt, who's like the Holts are not exactly a poor family. Like John Dominus Holt, that's a, that's an incredibly rich family. Like they used to own Waianae, um, basically. Um, but he is a Hawaiian author um, and he writes this book called On Being Hawaiian. That is basically a, a, a call for Hawaiian activism on a political and a cultural front. Um, and that's something that until 1974, there wasn't an audience for. But you could argue that until like the 1930s and 40s, there wasn't a need for that either. But it's when that older generation that was raised, um, you know, was born before the overthrow, et cetera, like that generation is dying off. Then all of a sudden, the younger generations are looking around and trying to figure out, well, what the hell are we? Who are we? Um, and then 1976, of course, Hokulea. Uh, so Hokulea starts off as uh, exp- a scientific, exp- exp- like basically scientifically like the arthropologists were trying to figure out, well, can we actually make a voyaging canoe that can make it to Tahiti? Like, is it physically possible for this canoe to make it to Tahiti? Um, and can we use traditional navigation? We'll bring over this dude from, from Sarawal and maybe he can figure it out. Um, and 1976, it's, you know, it starts off as that, but it really quickly turns into a pivotal, pivotal, pivotal um, cultural movement. Where as they're taking Hokulea around the islands, like people are like coming out of Karina and crying because for so long that younger generation was educated in this idea that like everything Hawaiian is shit. It's crap. That's how come we had to take over. That's how come you guys gotta be good Americans. And then seeing this thing and just being like, Wow, like our ancestors came over on that or like something like that was a huge sort of cultural moment so the hokulea and the voyaging society after that like they're going to be really pivotal pivotal for have a lot of trouble with that word really pivotal for um sort of this cultural renaissance cultural renewal um in the 19 later 1970s so one of the big parts of this is language Um, by the time you get to um 1984 there are fewer than 50 people in all of Hawaii um, under the age of 18 that can speak Hawaiian. Um, and when you get to that point, essentially something has to be done or the language will definitely die. There's still uh, a larger number of older people that can speak Hawaiian, but a lot of it is sort of, they have, you know, there's people who may have grown up speaking Hawaiian, um, but by the time, you know, 84, they're in their 60s or 70s, um, and they may not actually have spoken Hawaiian for years. Um, so there's, the, the language is going to die unless something is done. Um, and so one of the big steps was actually to take a look at what they had been doing down in Aotearoa, um, the Kohangareo system, which was uh, um, Te Reo, which is the Maori language, um, Te Reo immersion preschools. Um, and in 1984, a bunch of people got together um, and, and basically just cribbed off of their program um, and created the Punanaleo system. Um, and that's going to be, you know, that, that's 
key for a lot of a lot of the immersion efforts today. Like a lot of the people that today can speak Hawaiian who are under the age of it's like what is it now? Like they're like like eighty four. So it'd be like they'd be like forty now. Um, a lot of those people speak Hawaiian because of Punanaleo. Um, and uh, after Punanaleo, you will end up with uh, immersion schools from K to 12 um, from the, through the state um, where it's actually, you know, it's fun to take shits on Ige all the time because he has screwed up royally as governor. But one of the things he did help was push through um, some of the immersion funding um, when he was still in the legislature. But, you know, right now you can go all the way through to, to 12th grade in, in immersion. Um, and it's, it's hard um, because there's only a few schools where you can actually get there past seventh grade. Um, but it's brought back a, a pretty big revitalization of the language to the point that, like, you can hear Hawaiian being spoken, you know, in public again, where it is, like, there are enough people out there that people will be speaking, and it's often people speaking with their families, but you can hear it in public again. Um, and it's, it's, it's a huge change. It's still very much an endangered language. It's still very much something that needs... Um, more sort of effort in order for it to to be perpetuated um, beyond this generation, but it's but it's working, um, and we actually end up with by 2007 the first PhD written or dissertation written entirely in Olelo Hawaii, and that is Leilani Basham, who left us last year tragically went to UH Manoa, um, but she wrote her entire uh, dissertation in Hawaiian. And she had, to, she had to struggle to go and find people um, to be on her committee who could read Hawaiian or were willing to have someone translate it for them. Um, but at, at, it's at the point now where classes outside of the Hawaiian language program can be taught in Hawaiian language. Like some of the Hawaiian studies classes, they're actually teaching them in Hawaiian now. Um, and so that's a huge, that's a huge change um, that it's also the college level. You can be getting, uh, receiving instruction in Hawaiian at the college level. There's also a pretty strong anti-militarization um, movement that's connected in partly to Native Hawaiian things, as we'll see, but also to just general um, anti-militarization, anti-nuclear um, efforts in Hawaii. Um, the 1960s and 70s, it's mostly around the Vietnam protests, um, which, you know, the, the mainland or the, sorry, the media will try and portray that as largely like, oh, it's just a bunch of mainland Haole kids that, that are at Manoa that are, that are whining. Um, but actually, when you look at the, the protests, it's, there's a pretty large local contingent. Um, there's a lot of Hawaiians in there. There's a lot of non-Hawaiian local people um, because they're, they're the ones that are going to get sent to fight in this war um, if, they, if they fall out of college. So um, those UH kids were all over it. Um, and a lot of... A lot of people who weren't at UH um, joined in the protest as well because, you know, they were the ones who would have to go off and fight this war. Um, so a lot of that sentiment remained. Um, in the 1980s, a lot of it is going to be focused on Nuclear Free Pacific, um, the effort to essentially maintain, like, the, the only place in the world where, where nukes have been dropped on people is in the Pacific. The only places, like, when you look at, God, the only nuclear refugees in the world um, from nuclear weapons are in the Pacific because America and France and England tested nuclear weapons on islands that used to have people 
Um, and then briefly let those people move back and they all, you know, got radiation poisoning, but also just they made entire chunks of the Pacific uninhabitable just to see what happens when you drop a nuke. Um, so Nuclear Free Pacific was a huge movement. Um, it had some, like on the Big Island, the, the Big Island is nuclear free. Oahu is not, like, there's no nuclear reactors out here. Um, but like, take a look down at Pearl Harbor. Like, Hawaii has a, one, there's a lot of nuclear weapons that have gone in and out of Pearl Harbor. Um, but two, like, what do you think's running all those aircraft carriers? Um, so that was a big movement. Um, some success. Uh, most of the success was in um, kind of keeping pressure um, on the military to at least be upfront about what's going on as front, as upfront as the military is capable of being um, about what's going on, in, on with nuclear weapons, etc. in Hawaii. Um, but that's not going to be the that's not going to be the big one. Um, the big one for anti-militarization is going to be Koko Olave. Okay, so, you know, historically, Koho Olave is not really, it's never had a large population. It is relatively dry. The water had been drinkable, but brackish. Um, but it was used a lot for fishing, especially for the Maui people. Um, sort of going out there, fishing, and then bringing back, you know, staying out there until you get a, a bunch of fish. Fish, dry it, bring it back to Maui. Um, it had been used for navigation training. There were some religious purposes. Um, the Navy had leased it out before World War II. Before then, um, the Kingdom had used it for um, a prison for a little while, which doesn't work because it's not that far from Maui. Um, and if you put a bunch of Hawaiians in quote-unquote prison on Ko Olave, they're going to um, basically swim over to Maui or get their friends from Maui to come over. Um, so there's this constant like, movement of people back and forth between the prison um, and Kihei. Um, but the Navy, you know, at least after World War II, they used it for live fire um, practice until 1991. Um, essentially, they just bombed the crap out of it because it was, there was no one on it. The Navy had control of it, and they, they wanted to practice blowing things up. And Ko'olabe was the thing that they practiced blowing things up. Um, at one point, they were trying to figure out what... Um, oh, man. So they, they basically, um, they knew what would happen when you drop a nuclear bomb on stuff. Um, but they're like, hey, what happens when we just want to study the impact um, without the nuclear radiation? And they're like, Bruh. let's just make a giant pile of TNT. So they literally just made a pile of 454 tons of TNT. Again, 454 tons of TNT. They just made a stack of gun, oh, no, gunpowder, dynamite. Um, there's pictures of it. You can go and Google it. It looks like a weird pixelated orb. Um, and then they blew it the hell up and then they did again and they did it again. Um, three times they just blew this thing up. You could like the explosion shook Maui. Um, they probably damaged the water table. Um, they definitely left a big ass hole in the middle of Ko'olave. Um, and this is one of the things like seeing this like constant bombardment of Ko'olave and then seeing like hearing this explosion um, where like young Hawaiians that are getting politically active on, on Maui started asking questions about like, well, why are you blowing up one of our islands, man? Um, and they will now try and stop them from blowing up one of our islands. So in the 1970s, uh, a group of people 
um, founded something called Protect Koho Olave Ohana. Um, it's mostly Maui and Molokai people, which is, you know, what you'd expect because they're the ones that actually have connections to it. Um, a lot of them are younger people that had gone and asked Kupuna about Koho Olave and they, they told them about like, oh, you know, there's, there was fishing there. I'd been there when I was a kid, that sort of thing. Um, and they, they decided they're going to stop the bombing. And I want you to think about how ridiculous this sounds. It's a handful of Hawaiians that are like, like 20 or 30 people who are going to stop the U.S. Navy in the middle of the Cold War from blowing up an island in Hawaii. Like, that is, no, never going to happen. The Navy will never, ever, 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 ever stop doing that because it's the U.S. Navy. And they don't listen to natives. Like, that's not something they do. Um, so it sounded batshit. Um, and in 1976, they're like, okay, we're going to file lawsuits, um, which is like, it is the appropriate venue for like, that's how you, you get a lot of things done. You file lawsuits. Um, but they're like, oh, you know, we're, we're filing lawsuits, but no one cares. Like the lawsuits will never work because the way the law works is if you're powerful enough, like the U S Navy, a lawsuit is not going to stop you from doing anything. Um, you just work your way around it. Um, so like we need a popular movement. We need more attention. We need impact. We need someone to pay attention. Um, so how do we get more people in Hawaii to pay attention to what's going on on Ko Olave? Um, so you have to create an incident. So what they tried to, decided to do um, was to occupy Ko Olave. Send a bunch of people over there. Um, it's illegal. Um, it'll make the news. The Navy will have to stop bombing while there's people on the island, obviously. Um, but also, it'll get people sort of, they'll get their attention. Um, things like this had been other places. Um, AIM, the American Indian Movement, had done occupations. Um, I can't remember when the Alcatraz one was, but they'd also occupied... Um, oh, man. Hold on a sec. Let me look this up. AIM Occupation. Aim, I have to Google it. Do, 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 do. Aim, occupation of Alcatraz, 69. Um, and then the occupation of Wounded Knee um, was 73, right? So these are, you know, they're, they see that these things have gotten national attention, etc. And they were, they're really important for um, getting like Native Americans uh, sort of um, organized and like getting attention to Native American issues. Um, and so, so they, yeah, they decided to occupy Ko Olave. Um, in January 76, um, 50 try to get there. Um, only nine actually get there. The, the Navy and the cops stop everybody else, but nine of them get there and then scatter. Um, uh, it's, you know, they get arrested eventually, uh, but it makes a statement, right? It gets them in the news. Um, and then once it's in the news, then all of a sudden more and more people are talking about it. When more and more people are talking about it, that's going to get more people paying attention to the court cases. That's going to get them more and more people. Um, like if nobody talked about Mauna Kea, there would have been nobody up on the mountain except for like, um, poor case like trying to stop that thing, right? It's, it's the, the news that gets other people to go and actually like, oh, like this is something that's happening. Um, so they do it again um, the next year. Um, this time, five of them occupy the island, three arrested, but Walter Ritty, they had, one of the reasons they picked up Walter Ritty is he's from Molokai and he's a hunter. And they're like, <laughs> we go, 
when we go, we, we're going to need someone who knows how to hunt and who knows how to fish because the idea is we're going to hide on the island. Um, so the Navy can't blow it up, but also they're going to have to spend resources coming looking for us. And it'll be not just a one-time nightly, one-time news thing where they came and arrested us, but it'll be every night on the news. It'll be like, are these guys still on the island? Are they still on the island? Um, so they, Walter Ritty and Richard Sawyer, um, yeah, they, they hid. Um, they spent 35 days on the island. Um, until finally they, they surrendered to the Navy. And this, it did what they intended. It got a lot of attention. People were paying attention now um, because it got sort of nightly news. Um, and that's what the movement needed. The movement needed that news. And that's, um, this was intentional, um, but it also received, ended up you know, receiving some news, some much sadder news um, unintentionally. So... Um, these three guys, George Helm, Kimo Mitchell, and Billy Mitchell, um, George Helm, you know, he's a well-known musician, activist, etc. He was kind of one of the faces of the whole movement. Um, he and these other two guys go out, um, to check on Walter Ritty and check on Sawyer. What they don't know is Sawyer and Ritty had already been, They'd already left. They'd already been picked up. Um, and so these three guys are on the island. And they're not sure how they're getting picked up. And they're like, well, we'll just... They have yeah, one longboard, one shortboard, and fins. And all three of them are good swimmers. They're all watermen. They jump in the water. And only Billy Mitchell makes it back to Ko'olawe. And there's all kinds of stuff about like, oh, they were killed. The Navy picked them up. All this kind of stuff. Um, we're not sure, Right. Um, all we know is that George Helm and, and Kimo Mitchell never made it back. Uh, and this is, it's, it's this tragic moment. Um, but it does, for the Porteco Alave Ohana, one of the things it does do is it creates, it created more news. It's more people pay attention, um, and it creates a martyr. So it's a, it's this, it is an important moment for looking back at it, for people to, to like latch onto this thing as like, one of the ways they can remember that moment, remember that movement. Um, and it definitely got, again, more attention, more people were paying attention. Um, and it helped drive the movement forward. You definitely do see a slow building of public support, um, where it was a fringe issue in 1976. By the time you get to 1980, more and more people, um, on Maui especially, are pushing against it. It becomes uh, a key part of the sort of Hawaiian movement. Um, there's lo constant lawsuits going through. At one point, the mayor of Kauai, who has a ranch down in Kihei, finds a bomb on his ranch because while the Navy is mostly bombing Ko'olawe, sometimes they miss. Um, and at that point, the mayor of Maui becomes a very short of... He goes from from not really being behind this to being like, yes, we need to stop bombing Ko'olawe because my ranch got bombed. Um, but it's not until 1991. Um, they finally ordered the end of the bombing. It's partly the end of the Cold War, but it's also because these lawsuits are just tying them up. It's this constant thing. There's always lawsuits. Um, and even though it started off as a small group, because the Ko'olawe thing got so much attention, so many people ended up supporting it, it also ended up being this really important cultural moment of this victory. Um, PKO got access right. Kirk, which is the guys who are supposed to be like cleaning up Ko'olawe, um, they get access rights. And there's a, there are cleanups 
um, which they ran out of money for. Um, but it's, it's this kind of thing where like, yeah, there's, it's, it's just another moment in this growing sort of Hawaiian consciousness. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's arguably a victory. Um, some people would argue it's, it's not that much a victory because they, they blew the island up first. Um, but, but they're not blowing it up now. Um, So the Protect um, Ko'olave movement, right, is partly a political thing, but it's, it's also an environmental and cultural thing. Um, when we see, one of the first places we start seeing explicit political activism around um, not just, a, you know, an issue, but political activism around the issue of American um, control over Hawaii. Uh, the first time we start to see actual political activism around Hawaiian sovereignty, um, you know, it, there's stuff going back to, you know, the Campbells, etc. But 1987 is the first time where you see a group doing that, where you see a real conscious effort to create momentum behind Hawaiian political sovereignty. Um, Kalahui um, is going to be the first one, the first sort of big group. Um, it's... Um, there's going to be a lot of activists coming into this Hawaiian sovereignty movement. Like for a lot of younger folks, like you may not realize it, but like, it's not like there's always a Hawaiian sovereignty movement. Um, for a long time, that was, that was not even, there was no movement. Maybe some people wanted it, but there was no movement. Um, it's 1987 where they organized the first sort of efforts to create a movement. And a lot of people would have been involved in other stuff, like, you know, back to the Kalama Valley stuff or San Island, or they've been involved in PKO, or they've been involved in the demilitarization stuff, or they had been involved in language, or they'd been involved in Hawaiian education. A lot of those people now start sort of being attracted to like, okay, all of that was building. And then um, the, the sovereignty movement picked up on a lot of that. Like it incorporated a lot of those people. Um, the state's argument is that you have OHA, and that's your, that's your government. Um, OHA is a state agency. Um, so it's kind of like, well, not really. Like, that's literally the state government. Um, and as of the Rice v. Cayetano case, um, it's not even Hawaiians that, like, it's not just Hawaiians that can vote for OHA. So it's not really. Um, it's a state agency that, that does Hawaiian stuff. But that's not the same as having a Hawaiian government. Um, so Kalahui, you know, initially they're going to push for a sort of state with like basically the same like tribal status for Hawaiians. Um, that's going to change. A lot more people now are pushing for either full independence or something else. Um, so that's, yeah, th those are different um, sort of perspectives on this. Um, another big issue is the crown lands because of the state constitution um, that was rewritten in the late 70s, early late 70s, um, the state cannot sell crown lands um, unless there is a Hawaiian government for them to, to make deals with. Um, so the state has a lot of interest in creating some sort of government that they can sell the crown lands to, which is one of the reasons the state started pushing in the 90s for federal recognition um, without giving Hawaiians any land um, so that they would have essentially a bargaining chip to force the Hawaiian, this new Hawaiian government um, to, well, to allow them to sell crown land in order to get a cut of the, the revenue. 
Um, right now, sovereignty things are kind of on hold. A lot of the, the push and the effort has been around Mauna Kea and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, it's definitely still a thing. And it, it's gotten from a, like in 1987, when this happened, this is a fringe. This is like, people are like, oh, this is crazy. It's the same thing like Ko'olave. Like it's a bunch of crazy people doing some crazy thing over there. Um, but by the time you get to the 2000s, um, it's, it's a much more sort of broadly like, oh yeah, like maybe we could do this. Maybe this could actually happen. And even if we can't happen, maybe we should definitely support it. And finally, we get to resource issues. Um, you know, the, when you're reading through Noelani Goodyear Kaupua stuff, um, I guess to all the stuff on the Valleja, um, you know, water rights, that's a big one. Uh, the sugar plantations couldn't operate without water, and, and now the housing developments and the, the hotels can't operate without tons of water, and they, they build on the dry side of the island. Where's that water coming from? It's coming from the wet side of the islands. And who used to use that? Farmers, right? So it's, it's farmers versus water companies. Are you going to have Kalo or are you going to have a resort? Um, a lot of those sort of water rights have been focused on Maui, but they, they exist here on Oahu too. Um, the, the, man, every time they get, and this is, you read through the Noelani Goodyear Kaupua book, um, there's just this constant thing where every time they win a court case or something, they get screwed another time. They get screwed another time. Um, water is life. And that's something that it's life for the plantations. It was, it's life for the hotels, but it's also life for people who are trying to, trying to grow food. Um, so that continues to be a, a huge issue. Um, Native Hawaiian gathering rights, it's in the state constitution, but enforcement is weak. So a lot of the time there's often cases ex about people trying to exercise Native Hawaiian gathering rights. Um, and then like the sort of dual interests of the state in maintaining private property, but also allowing for these gathering rights. Um, that's an issue. Um, and the people who are behind, you know, you get a combination of environmentalists, Native Hawaiian groups, farmers and fishermen, um, it goes back and forth. Um, yeah, those those issues continue and will continue because there's there's money to be made in denying people those rights because there's money to be made in selling water. There's money to be made in in development, um, but there's also a real need to maintain those water rights to get those water rights back. Um, so th those arguments are not going to go away. Um, I should throw in something at the end here for about Mauna Kea. Um, but let's see. Yeah. Um, that's, it's following on all of these. It's building on all of these, uh, all of these different movements continually build, um, not just, uh, an activist base, but a sense of the ability of people, um, to push for native Hawaiian interests. Um, and Mauna Kea has definitely been building off of that. Okay, so I will leave that there. Um, please continue on with your projects. Um, even if you did your three reports, look through the Noelani Gurio Kawapua book. Um, it's got a lot of good information in there, a lot of stuff that's really essential for understanding the last 30, 40 years. Um, stay safe, everybody.